three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to Unearth, out of this world conversations about space mining with the people going after it. We are your hosts, Brandon Harris and Jared Peterson of Peter Lucas Project Management. Over the past few weeks, we've had a number of listeners ask us about actual mechanics of mining off-Earth objects. How does one actually approach and land upon an asteroid, which is hurtling at 10 miles per second, hundreds and thousands of miles away from Earth? How does the lower gravity of the moon or complete lack of gravity on asteroids affect our ability to extract resources? Have you guys seen the movie Armageddon? Along with many other fascinating questions. To help us explore some of these concepts and others, we're joined by Troy McConaughey, who's the current founder of Zigtrig Software and holds a PhD from Purdue, studying in the field of astrodynamics and has worked with numerous experts in the field, including Buzz Aldrin. Thanks for taking the time to join us, Troy. Yeah, happy to join you. So Troy, to start us off, planning and executing a space mission is obviously a very complex undertaking. Your education is in astrodynamics. So where does that all fit into the overall picture? Yeah, the name, it sounds like the dynamics of stars, but it's actually the, the dynamics and design of spacecraft trajectories. What, what, what I guess what I would be doing is called mission design or preliminary mission design, where you're designing the trajectory mostly. Mm. Um, but then like, there's people who design the thermal systems on the spacecraft, and there's people who design the communication systems, and there's people who design the propulsion systems, and there's all these separate subsystems on the spacecraft, and they all tend to have like two or three people working on them, each of those subsystems, and they all may, might re meet once a week or something to like make sure they're all sort of in sync, if you will. And then nowadays, I think there's even this push to getting everybody working on everything at the same time. So that's a more of an integrated approach uh, rather than having modular subsystems because that creates a lot of overhead, you know, like you can design everything as one coherent piece rather than a bunch of pieces that have to plug together. Like, you know, like how modern desktop computers, you know, you have your graphics card and you have your hard drives and, and you have all these sort of standard interfaces. Well, that's actually what it looks like inside of these satellites as well, right? There's all these standard interfaces and they just plug things together. But like SpaceX, for example, they have a different perspective on that. Like they, they basically try to design everything as one piece all together. And without having, that way they don't have to design all these interfaces. It's just like one coherent system <laughs> you design all at once, which is a very different way of doing it. Like it, it kind of, it, it's very difficult for existing organizations to do it that way because it, it means a change to the organizational structure of the organization. And that's actually the hardest kind of change to make in an organization. Like that's, for example, that's the reason why they didn't use tanks in World War One, because there was no tank division in the in the army or 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 the cavalry. You know, like there is the horses and there is the there is the soldiers. There's nobody. Where is where is supposed to put the tanks? You know, they don't fit anywhere. So, I guess I guess we can't use them. <laughs> you know, World War One would have been much shorter if they hadn't been able to use tanks, but they couldn't fit them into their organizational structure, and so they, you know, they couldn't use them. How does one go about chasing, catching, and eventually mining an off-Earth object? Okay, so I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on anything to do with mining, uh, but I, I can talk about how to actually catch one and, and land on one. 
And so I guess the first thing to understand, or maybe I'll give a kind of a an overview of, of how orbits work, and and especially the orbits of asteroids. Uh, one way to think about the solar system is the sun, kind of this big, huge, heavy thing in the middle, and then all these planets and asteroids and comets and whatever orbiting around the sun, as if the sun is kind of fixed in space, if you will. You can sort of treat that as your center of your coordinate system where it's fixed for all intents and purposes. And then the Earth goes around the sun in a roughly circular orbit. And in fact, when you do preliminary mission design of these sort of paths through space, you just you typically treat the Earth's orbit as circular. And then other planets also go around the sun in roughly circular orbits. So Earth, we call the distance from the sun to the Earth, the average distance, we call that one astronomical unit. So that's kind of like the standard yardstick for solar system distances. And so, for example, the distance from the sun to Mars is about one and a half astronomical units. And the distance from the sun to Jupiter is about five, a bit more than five astronomical units. And then the asteroids, most of them are all kind of scattered in between Mars and Jupiter. Although, I mean, there's quite a lot of exceptions to that. And actually, asteroids are actually just a kind of a subset of a larger group of, of bodies that they call minor planets. And right now, there's maybe about a million of those that are known. Most of those actually have been found in just the past 20 years, like by a lot of automated methods. And so like we only kind of pa passed that threshold of a million in the past year here or so. So there's about a million of these minor uh, planets scattered through the whole solar system and even beyond Jupiter. Those guys are called centaurs. And there's ones that are out beyond Pluto, uh, what they call the Kuiper Belt. Uh, anyway, there's a lot of these all over the place. And uh, some of them even cross the orbit of the Earth. So those are called Earth-crossing asteroids. And of course, you, you really don't want those to hit the Earth when the Earth is there, because that would be uh, a bad thing. Uh, in fact, that's what caused one of the previous ex big extinctions on Earth, you know, the, I forget which one of them. There's been like six big extinctions, and one of them was caused for sure by an asteroid hitting the Earth. In fact, that's a good reason why you want to maybe have other outposts besides the Earth. Because like if an asteroid were to hit the Earth today, or if even new one was coming in a week from today, there's really nothing we could do about it. <laughs> so it'd be a good idea to have like a sort of a backup group of people, maybe on Mars or on an asteroid or, or on some moons or whatever. Anyway, so coming back to the general kind of layout of the solar system, so we've got all these planets. Uh, most of the asteroids are in between Mars and Jupiter. It's like the biggest one, for example, is Ceres. Um, in fact, it, it's so big that it's considered a dwarf planet, which is like the same category as Pluto now. There's five dwarf planets, and Ceres is one of them. And those guys, they're, they're called dwarf planets because they're actually circular. There's, they have so, there's so much mass that they actually, like they're a sphere. Their, their gravity compresses them into the, a sphere. And then there's other big ones too, like Vesta and uh, Pallas. And in fact, we, we, we um, recently sent a, a mission to both Vesta and Ceres uh, called the Dawn mission. 
And what it did, it, it launched from the Earth. This is a, a spacecraft that was launched from the Earth by a rocket. And then, I mean, the rocket, you know, a several stage rocket. And then it, when, it, when it got into orbit, then it started thrusting. And I think it might have done a gravity assist at Mars, which is where the spacecraft passes close to Mars and it gets its, its velocity turned by Mars. And so that relative to the sun, that actually sped it up and sent it out into the asteroid belt faster than it would have otherwise. And then that spacecraft was also really interesting in, in another way in that it, it didn't have the typical like thrusters where you thrust really, really hard for a short period of time. It had what's called a, an ion engine where you thrust for really low thrust for long periods of time. And that was one of the first like real missions that ever did that. Uh, so then it went to Vesta and it went into orbit around Vesta for a couple of years, I think. And then it left Vesta and it went into orbit around Ceres for, for some years. And actually it's still orbiting Ceres today, um, but it ran out of propellant and so they, they were no longer able to keep it pointed at the Earth. And, and so it's just, as far as I know, it's in a stable orbit around Ceres and it should be there for at least 20 years or something. So that gives you a sense of like the kind of thing you can do, the kind of mission. And there have actually been something like 20 missions to asteroids since um, the Galileo spacecraft was the first one back in the 90s. It flew by an asteroid on the way out to Jupiter or a couple asteroids. And on the second one, actually, that was the first time they ever saw a moon around an asteroid. <laughs> they, you know, they took a picture of it and it's like, whoa, there's some moon orbiting this thing. So that was cool. But yeah, there's, there have actually been several of these missions to asteroids. So we, we now we kind of have a sense of how to do that. And in fact, there was one even, even one mission, as far as I know, only one mission that has landed on an asteroid. Kind of tricky because asteroids are not very heavy, right? And so there's not a lot of gravity. Uh, and so it's kind of like docking with the space station or something where the, the thing you're docking with, it doesn't really have a lot of gravity to speak of. So you're just kind of like, maneuvering up to it. I mean, Ceres is big enough that, yeah, it does have a gravity anchor, but like the one it landed on was not that big. Uh, and so I, I think it just kind of sat there for a while and then after a while, maybe it floated away or something. So with them being like relatively small, if you were to land on an asteroid, when you go to take off from it, is that going to impact the asteroid's trajectory? No, probably not because you know, it's this, it's basically kind of like a flea taking off of, off of a horse. You know, it's, there's so much more inertia in the horse that it doesn't really affect. I mean, like technically speaking, yes, but <laughs> for all practical purposes, no, it doesn't. And so you can ignore that, you know, for the first approximation and probably like even in like third order approximation, you wouldn't really worry about that. But okay. on the other hand, I mean, there is a mission planned here in the next couple of years, or was, for NASA to go and like, like attach a spacecraft to an asteroid and like start thrusting to push the thing into orbit around the moon. And I mean, I don't know if that mission is still on because, you know, these things get canceled all the time and I don't keep track of everything. But it was, you know, definitely on the books as a, a thing they were going to do. And like, so they'd done all the calculations and it wasn't like totally harebrained idea. And so maybe it was a smaller asteroid. And yeah, the thing is, the reason why they use this low thrust propulsion, it's not just because it's cool. It's also because it's really efficient because 
basically the efficiency of uh, of propulsion. It, it's kind of like throwing, like if you're standing on roller skates and you throw a ball, uh, you're going to get pushed backwards. And like the heavier the ball you throw, that's all, that's going to make you get pushed faster backwards. But also the, the faster you throw the ball, the faster you're going to get pushed backwards. And so you can think of that ball as like propellant. And you can think of yourself as like the spacecraft. And so basically the faster you throw the propellant out of the spacecraft, the more efficient, like the more oomph you're giving your spacecraft. And so these low thrust propulsion systems, they actually throw the propellant out really, really fast, like way faster than the, like if it's just a chemical propulsion where they're burning like kerosene or one of these hydrazine or one of these sort of deep space propellants. It's like 10 times faster, so it's way, way more efficient. And so you don't need to take as much propellant with you and you get way more change in your velocity. With the change in velocity in, in this in the spacecraft world, it's called delta V. So the delta is for the change and the, the V is for velocity. Uh, and so you, you talk to astrodynamics people and they're always talking about delta V. Uh, and they're trying to minimize the delta V in their missions because that's basically minimizing the propellant. And that's kind of like one of the main expenses of a mission is this propellant. Uh, it's it's actually the cost of propellant is like exponential in the amount of propellant you send up. So like you you really don't want to have a lot of propellant. Like it's it's, it's literally in the exponent of the of the cost. Like e to the x, where x is the mass of the propellant. So you, yeah, just definitely try and keep that down. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they try to minimize propellant and. And like that's typically the thing you're trying to minimize when you're designing a mission, is the propellant or the delta V. Um, and then there's all these constraints you're usually trying to accommodate. So uh, there's constraints on uh, when you can launch because of the way that way the all the planets are aligned. So like for example, in a series mission, they want to do this flyby of Mars. Well, when the spacecraft arrived at Mars, Mars had to be there. You know, they, it could have been anywhere in its orbit. But they had to time things just right. So when the spacecraft crossed over Mars's orbit, Mars was actually there. And so that affected the launch date of the mission. And that was one of the key things that determined the launch date of that mission. And also, you also had to like be able to arrive at at Vesta eventually and then eventually be able to get to Ceres. So like everything, all that timing really affects when you can launch. For example, like that's a bit of a complicated mission. But like the more common cases, like Earth missions that involve Earth and Mars, like there's lots of those. And so Earth has an orbit orbital period of one year, and Mars's orbital period is a bit less than two years, like 1.88 years, something like that. And so because of that, you can kind of think of it as like two sine waves that have different periods, and like every roughly every two and one seventh years, or every 26 months. They kind of all come back to the same phase, and so things kind of start all over again. So basically, you can kind of do the same mission again every two and one seventh years. That's why these missions to Mars tend to happen every like every two and one seventh years. Or <laughs> it's, it's roughly 26 months because that's when, like, say maybe the total delta V is minimized. There's a mission launching here in the next year or so to Mars. Like they're sending another rover there, and they're sending a helicopter. Uh, 
and probably several other missions are launching around then too. I, um, but that's the big NASA one that's going in the ne in this next launch window. And so, so that's one of the constraints is this timing constraints. Uh, and there's also constraints that have to do with trying to minimize, like if there's people on board, you'd want to minimize the time that they spend. Although, I mean, there's not a lot of, there have never been any human missions outside of going to the moon. Um, but that's another constraint is time, like just t total duration. And then of course, you, there's, there's things like you don't want the spacecraft to get too close to the sun because then you'd overheat it or you might wreck the solar cells or whatever. How close so would too close be? Well, I mean, you can design it to withstand lots of heat, like there have been missions to Mercury, but you, it's going to add a lot of weight in shielding to the spacecraft, right? So that, that affects the design of the overall mission. So last week we uh, watched SpaceX's Crew Dragon as it was on its trajectory to, to meet up with the International Space Station. So I think it reached, you know, velocities around 27,000 kilometers an hour. Um, it's just interesting what you're saying about, about the exponential requirement for propellant. Um, so to actually escape Earth's orbit, you have to get up closer to 40,000 kilometers an hour. So we saw that that rocket launch and you see just kind of what the the thrust required to get to the International Space Station. So to get out beyond that and then and then the ion engines kick in and and carry you to the further distances I'm kind of gathering. But uh, just to get out of out of the, the Earth's gravity, what does that take? Yeah, so th so that's basically getting from Earth's surface into low Earth orbit is actually quite hard. Like that's there's this saying in the in this in the astrodynamics world that it, if you can get to low Earth orbit, then you're halfway to anywhere in the solar system, because you can kind of think of it as getting out of this gravity well, like climbing out of a well. And once you're like there, then it's you're kind of on the plains now, and you, there might be some hills to climb and whatever. But it, it's pretty cheap to get from low Earth orbit, like to the moon, or to even to some near Earth asteroids. Uh, and so it doesn't take a whole lot more propellant to do that. The hardest part is like fighting against the atmospheric drag at first and then just getting out of Earth's gravity well. That's sort of the Earth launch problem, you know, the rocket pop. When, when you're designing spacecraft trajectories and missions, you normally just have like this table of, of rockets that are available to you and you, you can basically say, well, how much mass can you launch into low Earth orbit at what velocity or what, what they call the V infinity? That's basically the, the speed relative to the Earth. Like, so it's kind of, the way to think of that is kind of, once you've kind of escaped Earth's gravity completely, how fast are you moving relative to the Earth? And they call it the V infinity. And so how much mass can you launch at different V infinities is, is this table and for different rockets. And so like how they do that, the complexities of how these rockets work <laughs> and the rocket engines and all of that, that's basically rocket science. And that's just sort of taken as a, as somebody else's job <laughs> in the mission design world. But for like a person who designs missions, this is something you just have these tables and you look up, for example, if you, if you, have, if you want to launch a, at a given uh, the infinity leaving the Earth, then this is how much mass you can have over this particular rocket, say like the Delta II heavy or something. Mm -hmm. And like SpaceX now has their own rockets, right? And so those uh, have their own tables. I guess I should come back to, so I was talking about the orbits of like Earth and Mars and so on. Those are roughly circular orbits. Um, asteroids have kind of more squashed orbits, what they call ellipses. 
And so ellipses, it's kind of like a circle that's like a hula hoop where you kind of press down a bit on it. In that case, the sun is not at the center. It's actually a, one of what they call the foci or the, one of the focuses of the ellipse. And some of these asteroids have actually fairly, really quite squashed um, orbits. And then uh, others are more circular. So, I mean, and, and then the actual spacecraft trajectories, like, so when you design a spacecraft trajectory, say to go from Earth to Mars, obviously that can't be a circular orbit because if you if you were in a circular orbit, you just stay in the same orbit as the Earth and you wouldn't, wouldn't accomplish anything. <laughs> so you, you really need to go into one of these elliptical orbits. Actually, the cheapest one tends to be the one where you can kind of imagine this squashed hula hoop where one end of the hula hoop touches one Earth orbit in one place, mm -hmm. kind of on the inside of the hula hoop. And then the outside of the hula hoop touches the inside of Mars's orbit on, just in one place. And that's what they call a Hohmann transfer orbit. And that's actually the one that typically minimizes the total delta V that you need to do. So there'd be this one delta V that you do to leave Earth's orbit and get onto this traject onto this ellipse. And then there'd be another delta V you'd to speed yourself up and get into Mars's circular orbit once you get to Mars. And so you add up those two delta Vs, and the Hohmann transfer orbit is the one that typically minimizes the sum of those two delta Vs. And so you can kind of usually start use that as your starting point for a design, and, uh, and then from there you can run optimization software to, to make things better, you know? When you actually get to Mars, you accelerate to enter its orbit. I, I just picture it as, you know, you get off Earth, you fly there as fast as you can, and then you start slowing down. But that's not the case. Yeah, so when you leave Earth, you have to actually speed up to leave Earth. And to, like, to basically get into this higher energy orbit that actually goes out to Mars now. And then when you get out to Mars, and you get close to Mars, Mars is actually now going a little faster than you. So you have to speed up again to like catch up to Mars in a sense because uh, it's going faster than you also. Once you're basically matched the speed of Mars, you kind of go into orbit of Mars. And there's there's actually tricks, like you could, there's a trick called aerobraking where you can actually use the, the atmosphere of Mars to slow you down. So you don't actually have to use it. And But maybe you don't want to slow down. I mean, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. There might even be a way to speed you up. I, I mean, it was not something I studied a lot, but some of like my fellow graduate students did that. Uh, you know, designing these aerobraking missions, and not ever. I'm not sure if it's actually ever been used for like gravity assists, but it's certainly used like to to like slow down and actually land on Mars. Uh, you know, like all these missions that go to Mars and end up landing there, they use they try to use Mars's atmosphere as much as they can to slow down, right? So, when you finally arrive at your destination, say it is Mars, say it's an asteroid. In the case where we're trying to mine or extract resources, to take that resource and send it back to Earth, is it the same? It, obviously, it sounds like it's the same principles to try to get back onto Earth. Yes. Yeah, so, well, the first step you'd have to basically match your velocity with that asteroid, and and then you'd want to go into like orbit around it and like closer and closer and closer and basically dock with it in a sense. Yeah, so you, you want to st um, basically stick in some kind of like anchor or harpoon into the asteroid to like make sure you're firmly anchored into this asteroid. And then you do your mining or whatever, that might take a while. You get your resources, maybe even do some processing there, you know, using solar power or whatever. 
Maybe there's even some you know, things you can use for fuel on the asteroid. And then once you've got whatever you want from, from the asteroid, you then have to launch off of the asteroid. Now that's not very hard, you know, because there's not a lot of gravity. But the hard part is we actually inserting yourself into an orbit that takes you back to Earth. And so you'd have to do like a, basically slow down relative to the asteroid. And then that would put you to, into an orbit basically taking you back to the Earth or, or to the moon or wherever you're going. Hmm. Uh, and then, so, so like, that's how you do it, like if you're only using one spacecraft. And then there's other ideas where you, you send up some mine rigs and things and you keep them there permanently, like long term. And then you set up some other system where there might be some kind of like orbits where there is a big giant, like a bus or like a ferry all it, its only only job is to like ferry resources back and forth between, say, Earth and an asteroid. So it basically stays in that orbit forever, ever and ever. And to get up to that spacecraft when it passes by the Earth, you basically like take a little taxi spacecraft from the Earth up to this thing when it's passing by. And the same thing when you when it passes by the asteroid, it would basically send down some taxis, or some taxis would come up from the asteroid up to this this big ferry. And so this this big huge I'm calling it big because it doesn't have to be small you know it could have like it could be a space station, and it, it could be using um, gravity assists from the Earth say to like keep its orbit sort of repeating on a regular basis, mm. and so these things with these kind of these orbits that repeatedly pass by the Earth and say an asteroid, those are what are known as cyclers, and so that's how you use these sort of what they call cycler trajectories or cyclers. Those orbits were first kind of invented back in the 1980s. Well, actually, they were first mentioned back in the 60s by, by a professor at MIT. He and some of his graduate students did built, designed some cyclers between Earth and Venus. But then the idea was kind of forgotten about until the 1980s. And that's when um, there's a few different independent groups that came up, kind of came up with the idea again. And they were looking at Earth and Mars. And so there was Buzz Aldrin, who um, had several ideas and sort of the most famous one that he developed was known as the Alden Cycler. And that was invented around 1985, I think, or discovered, I guess. There's these other two guys, Niehoff and um, Friedlander. And, and they developed these other cyclers known as the Visit Cyclers, There's Visit 1 and Visit 2. And then uh, Aldrin, he'd done his PhD at MIT in, in um, rendezvous and you know, orbital mechanics type stuff, but he hadn't done that stuff for a long time, like the calculations in the 1980s. And so he actually went to JPL and found some guys there to help him with some calculations to like figure out this, these ideas for, for cyclers. And so the two guys he worked with there were uh, uh, Dennis Burns and Jim Longusky. And uh, they, they worked out the calculations to actually figure out this, this alternate cycler like to see how well it actually worked. And it works. I mean, it passes by the Earth and Mars and on a regular basis. And, um, you know, it, it does exactly what um, Buzz Aldrin had envisioned. And so they did the calculations. They published a paper in 1993. And that was kind of like one of the, that's kind of like the Aldrin Cycler paper, if you will. And then after that, Jim Longusky left JPL and he went to become a professor at Purdue University. And that's actually where I went to university for my grad studies. 
So when I was in, in my grad studies at Purdue, this is now in the early 2000s, my, my research was actually funded by JPL. And so Janice Burns was actually one of the guys who was like behind the funding, I guess. And so like he would come in on our, our calls every now and then. And I was actually helping design these missions that use low thrust propulsion and gravity assist maneuvers. For example, the Dawn mission is an example of a mission who uses low thrust propulsion and gravity assist maneuvers. At some point, maybe in 2001 or 2002, Jim Longusky, my advisor, he, he comes to me one afternoon and says, uh, hey, hey, Troy, Buzz Aldrin called me today and, and asked if we'd like to help him work out some ideas for new ideas he has for cyclers. And, and would you like to help me do these calculations? Because <laughs> uh, like, I don't know if you, like in the way that in the world of professors, you know, basically professors, they, they have a bunch of graduate students and the, it's really the graduate students who end up doing a lot of the work, right? And so he asked me and some of his other grad students if we'd help him and, and Buzz Aldrin look into some new cyclers. And so I said, sure, you know, <laughs> sounds fun. And so over the course of the next year or more, we had regular teleconferences with Buzz Aldrin, uh, which was cool. And and we ended up writing a paper with him. And it actually led me to sort of really look into this. Uh, like up to that point, cyclers had always been designed in kind of an ad hoc way, sort of like drawing pictures and trying to make things work. And I, I was wondering, like, is there a way to sort of like construct them from scratch? So is there, an, in a sense, is there a, is there a set of all possible cyclers between Earth and Mars? Yes, and like, how, if so, how would you construct those? And how would you design them all? And so I, I made some simplifying assumptions and, you know, I basically assumed that Earth and Mars are circular orbits and, and that, um, that they're coplanar, so they all lie in the same plane. And, you know, basically all these, they're roughly true assumptions. And once you make these assumptions, you can design basically all of these cyclers that, that exist and, and evaluate them for how good they are. And so there's this whole family of cyclers, and it turns out the Aldrin cycler is just one of them in this whole family of cyclers. And, and that same principle can be used to design cyclers not be just between Earth and Mars, but between Earth and any other body or well, at least the, the lighter bodies, like so all the asteroids. In the process of doing that, I, I discovered several new cyclers that no one had looked at before. And and some of them do some neat tricks, like where they, they kind of have two different orbits that they patch together, where one of them might go to Mars and do the go to the Mars thing and come back from Earth. But then the other orbit, when it passes by Earth, it kind of kicks it into a different orbit that is like a phasing orbit. It gets everything just so, so that the whole thing repeats after two synodic periods. And so you can restart the whole thing again after two synodic periods, like which is like four and two seventh years, so that you can just redo the whole thing again. You can definitely design these kinds of cycler orbits to go to Mars or to any asteroid and, and act as your kind of like your ferry boat, if you will, to carry materials or people or anything back and forth between any two planets or asteroids or whatever. I think it's probably a pretty rare and special privilege to work with, you know, someone as legendary as Buzz Aldrin having, you know, been one of the first human beings to set foot on the moon. And um, so what was it actually like working with him? Yeah, so we, we always kind of hoped that he would come by Purdue University, you know, and, and like visit us in person. 
And in these teleconferences, every time we'd call him, he'd be in some somewhere new. Like one time he was on a cruise ship near Puerto Rico, and another time he was in the Pentagon. He really gets around, you know. But he actually, he never ended up coming by Purdue when I was there. And then I left. I, I finished my PhD in 2004, and then I left in early 2005. And then he came to visit, like, in 2006 or something. Mm. So <laughs> go figure, you know. Just uh, missed him. But I think he's still around. So, I mean, maybe I will meet, bump into him again someday. I don't know. We'll see. Thank you so much for your time today, Troy. Really appreciate it. And, you know, sharing so much knowledge with us. And it's it's fascinating to kind of delve into some of the more, um, you know, technical elements of getting off Earth and, and towards the asteroids or towards the orbits of Mars and, and those other bodies that are out there in the solar system. The number of different aspects of, of science and, and uh, engineering that kind of interface in order to, to pursue these missions is, is very interesting you know the notion of rocket science and you just read off the tables and and you get uh, your information to take and apply to your special area of science you know it's it's so similar to you know I think to what we all uh, do to some to some respect no matter what kind of specialty you're in so in the sciences anyway so it's very interesting yeah and I think that's pretty interesting too how you know you're able to work with people that are legendary, such as Buzz Aldrin. And I think it just goes to show kind of how tight-knit that community is, like the, the space community, or maybe how small it is. I, I'm not sure, but I, I just think that's fascinating. And uh, yeah, love hearing about it. Um, if people want to reach out to you or get in touch with you, follow you, anything like that, how how can people get a hold of you? Uh, well, on Twitter, I use Troy MC, so T-R-O-Y-M-C is my uh, username or whatever. And then I also have a website, which I, I mean, I try to keep it updated. And, and so that's at TroyMcConaughey.com. So T-R-O-Y-M-C-C-O-N-A-G-H-Y.com. Well, thanks so much, Troy. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you have any comments or questions, please pop by PeterLucas.ca slash unearthed and leave us a note. Or you can contact us at the Twitter handle at Space Unearthed. Godspeed, everyone. Bye.